0: You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host, Liz MacArthur. Joining me today in the studio is Fiona Mitchell, a, a master's student in fine arts, specifically poetry.
1: Yeah, so I'm getting an MFA in creative writing, concentrating in poetry.
0: That means you're writing your own poetry, is that right? You're not nece- yes. you're not studying poetry.
1: Um, it's a little bit of both. In the first year, the way our program works is two-year program. In the first year, it's a lot of coursework, and we are doing workshops where we're writing our own work, but we're also reading other Canadian writers mm-hmm. and uh, studying other genres of poetry that maybe we weren't exposed to previously coming into the program.
0: Right. Now, did you go straight through uh, undergrad into a graduate program um, to get to where you are now, or did you? was there a gap in between?
1: I have an undergraduate degree in Greek and Roman studies from Carleton, University in Ottawa. I did that pretty much straight through. I just took a year off in between my undergrad and coming to Mm UVic.
0: Did you write poetry while you were doing your undergrad?
1: I've always been interested in writing. I took a creative writing course in high school and I took two creative writing workshops um, during my undergrad And when I was finished my undergrad with the heavy history aspects, I was ready to move on to something much more creative. I feel like when we're in high school, there's a lot of people in choir, in theater, in art. And I feel like as we grow up, we lose those creative aspects. So I wanted to go back to that place Mm -hmm. and really sharpen my skills and expose myself to the world of not only poetry, but Canadian poetry and what's happening right now and what I can do to make myself a part of that world.
0: Hmm. Um, You said you were taking creative writing classes in high school. Were you involved in any kind of poetry scene at all?
1: I attended a lot of slam poetry readings, which Ottawa has a pretty good slam poetry scene. I know Victoria does as well. Um, But I never performed at those just because my work isn't really slam or spoken word. It's Mm. much more... written on the page and lives for the page
0: what defines something as slam poetry or something that would not be slam that would be written so you is it what's S- the difference
1: slam poetry is delivered in a certain way that's a lot more audio um with a lot more sonic qualities there's this kind of inside joke like where the, it's delivered with this slam voice hmm. um and sometimes slam poetry doesn't translate well to the page. If you break down what they're actually saying you don't get a lot of poetic lines a lot of images, elaborated descriptions um, but it's it works really well on the stage hmm. so I guess I would define slam poetry as something that maybe wouldn't translate to the page um, but there are slam poets out there whose work can live in both worlds. Oh yeah. Um, slam poetry also tends to deal with a lot more political themes um, whereas poetry on the page can deal with any theme out there.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Your own writing is, what do you, what are some of the themes that you focus on?
1: So my thesis manuscript right now, I'm relying heavily on my degree in Greek and Roman studies and the classic world. Um, What I've been doing a lot of is taking the voices of ancient Greek mythological women and putting them in contemporary situations or giving them contemporary characteristics. Hmm. And that's just one part of the manuscript, but the themes of their myths translates to the contemporary world in the other parts of the manuscript. Hmm. I also have a lot of poems about my personal experiences with modern day Greece in three separate occasions, so throughout um, a period of time, and how kind of these myths that come out of ancient Greece and how we no longer believe in these ancient Greek deities uh, kind of reflects the state that modern Greece is in right now. It's got a crumbling economy. There are lots of political issues, and it's simply not as great as it once was. It's, It's really having a hard time finding its place in this contemporary world. Um, So I draw on my classics to kind of make parallels with with that. Mm. Um, A lot of my work is all free verse. I have a few found poems um, working with some ancient Greek texts um, and a few kind of loose translations, but for the most part, it's free verse.
0: Tell me about the found poems. That, That sounds really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, so I'm taking a really great course this year that's offered as part of the undergraduate creative writing Program. It's um, Advanced Forms and Techniques of Poetry, and it's all these different forms. So you get Sestinas, Villanelles, found poetry, things of that nature. And um, so a found poem is just taking any sort of text um, from any amount of sources and reworking that text um, to be a completely new poem um, with a really big emphasis on your line breaks and where you're, you're breaking that text and, and maybe unexpected twists of um, lines and words. And so for the poem I have in my manuscript, I've taken text from my ancient Greek, Crosby and Schaefer um, language textbook, and I'm taking these, like, lines about you know translate this chunk of text or certain declensions and um, conjugating nouns and reworking it to speak to something that's elevated and and something that goes beyond just like the the academic way of learning ancient Greek and more speaks more yeah. about the themes within my manuscript of of uh, old versus new and and growing up and and things of things like that
0: Hmm. So are you doing the translations yourself? Can you speak Greek?
1: I can't speak Greek. Um, I can translate it a little bit. Um, When you learn ancient Greek, you're mostly learning how to translate and the art of translation, which is so interesting because you're learning not only how to take what this word in ancient Greek means and what it means in English, but you're really learning how to convey the same sense of that overall line or paragraph and Mm -hmm. how we would convey that in English. Um, so yeah, I can't speak Greek, but I can, um, read a little bit of it, um, and translate a little bit of it. Um, the one kind of translation piece I have, I've taken, um, a passage from Homer's The Odyssey, where Circe is appealing to Odysseus to stay on her island, because she really likes him, and he's like, no, I've got to go find my wife, and she's kind of seducing him, and so I've taken that passage, and I've, uh, um, inverted the gender so it's it's a male appealing to a female in a bar to come home with him for the night and yeah so I, I reference in that passage um, she mentions Circe mentions how she's going to turn uh, Odysseus's men into boar so I, I reference boar and, and and things like that
0: hmm that's really interesting that I like that sort of role reversal and the making it contemporary you're talking about other m- myths and other women in ancient Greek uh, Greek myths. What are some of the themes that you pull forward that seem to be like universal from that time and this time?
1: Right. So one of the figures I've gravitated towards a lot is Medusa. We've all heard about Medusa and how she's a monster with snakes on her head and turns people into stone just by looking at them. But when you really look at her original myth, it's very tragic because she was only churned into that monstrous form because she was raped by Poseidon in Athena's temple, and Athena found that extremely disrespectful, but did not punish Poseidon and punish Medusa and turned her into this monster. And so now she lives in this cage and and is violent and and things like that. Um, So I really gravitated towards that myth because to me that really speaks to how there's so much victim blaming that still goes on in our society when it comes to victims of rape and how people tend to argue over these black and white issues um, surrounding rape and and saying that, oh, what happened to you wasn't actually rape, rape by my definition. People don't really understand that rape is actually any sort of unwanted penetration of your body. It doesn't just mean a penis in a vagina. It mm-hmm. can mean a finger or anything like that. Um, and that's a theme that gets continued in the more contemporary world of my manuscript. And I feel like that story of Medusa is so important, especially when we're getting uh, you know, recent news issues, uh, the Steubenville rape case where people are up in arms because these two men, their lives are ruined because they're they're being charged with this rape and that's just so horrible and it just it's more and more evidence of this victim blaming that exists not only in North American society but um, throughout the globe in many different countries in many different ways. Hmm.
0: Sounds like you're dealing with some pretty heavy topics and are you are you really aware of what's happening or do you make yourself more aware of what's happening in the news to sort of uh, continue with these contemporary themes or is it just um, it just comes up and just influences what you're doing?
1: I mean, I do pay attention to the news. I read a lot of feminist uh, blogs, such as Jezebel, where they discuss things like this. Uh, and I am very aware of it. But I, I don't want to be writing pieces specifically about those events. I kind mm. of want readers to read my work and apply what I'm saying um, out in the world and in whatever avenue they want to.
0: Mm hmm. Um, and why do you choose uh, such intense topics? Um, I mean, you could be writing about anything, really. Is it um, you're just interested in current events in the news? or And do you want to achieve something specifically with your poetry?
1: It wasn't something that I really set out to do. A lot of it had to do with the deeper I dug into the origins of these myths. Um, I wanted to write about Medusa because she's a woman that a lot of people recognize. It's um, something people can get a really quick visual when they're reading the story, or reading the poem, rather. So I don't intend to, to go very deep or extreme. A lot of it has to do more with digging into the origins of these myths. I really wanted to write about Medusa, and the more I found out about her story, uh, the more I realized how it would apply to um, the contemporary world. So I don't go out with these big contemporary themes that I want to pull out I'm really just pulling out what the myths are presenting to me and um, applying it to the contemporary world and and to my world a a lot of the manuscript is very personal.
0: Okay you're talking about it being personal for you and the stuff from your own life that's in your your manuscript Um, first of all can I ask you how long is the manuscript and is it just made up of poems or is it made up of your explanation of the material you're working with?
1: So yeah, it's a poetry manuscript, so it's all poems. It's roughly 84 pages now, um, give or take. I've also got some, some pictures in there, and I do have a glossary that comes at the end. I don't footnote to the glossary, so it's more if a reader um, opens the page to a certain poem and they don't recognize that figure, they can refer back to the glossary, but if they do know that figure, then they can use their information to interpret the poem.
0: Right, and in, for each of the mythological women, is what you mean? Right, yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: Like I, most people know Aphrodite. I've got uh, Ariadne in there too from the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. But then I also have figures like at Atlantia who maybe um, people who aren't very well versed in classics, won't recognize. So I have a glossary in the back where people can refer and get bullet points of the myths that Mm. I'm bringing up in the poem to help interpret that better.
0: Right. Um, And so you said it's about 84 pages now. How long is it going to be at the end?
1: Probably roughly the same. Right,
0: okay. And uh, that's that's a lot of poetry. And so you're talking about... Um, stuff coming from your own experience in your own life. Uh, Is there a line that you draw? How much of your own stuff, I guess, do you put into this poetry?
1: Right now I'm writing just thinking that my thesis advisor is going to see it. The goal is um, ultimately after I defend my thesis to send this out into the world and to have it published. I would love for this to be published. And I feel like at that point I'll start worrying more about that. I do put a lot of personal things in there. I do reference some people and events that maybe I shouldn't be referencing. I've really been struggling a lot recently with, um, throughout the manuscript, there's um, dealing with death and grief, and I'm drawing on the experience of when I was 18 and a friend named Jillian passed away. And uh, part of me is, is very much struggling with feeling very selfish writing about that because her death is not about me personally. Um, and part of me is very worried if this ever got published, if her close friends or family didn't agree with the way that I was interpreting her. But it's not so much interpreting her, it's more interpreting the speaker's grief with, um, with her. Um, but I do worry about those things, but not too much right. right now, because it's all a moot point if it doesn't get published. Right. Um, also, I've uh, people joke that if you're friends with a writer, you know, your world is up for grabs. And, mm-hmm. and we do tend to be grabby, but hopefully in a respectful way.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, that must be a worry. Like, have you had poems in the past that you have drawn on personal experience, and maybe it's come back to bite you because it has something about someone and they get upset?
1: Not yet. No.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've been pretty, pretty lucky so far. That's good. Yeah. Hmm. A lot of it has to. A lot of my manuscript has to do too with uh, female, female relationships and friendships and how we as women come together as friends and 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 function. And I'm obviously drawing on a lot of my personal friendships and and that's a big worry too. But at the same time, if I'm discussing somebody who I'm not friends with anymore and who I had a falling out with. That's not a secret. The other person knows that we had a falling out. Like right. they're, they're not surprised. Um, and it's not like I'm I'm saying all this personal information about like where they live now and 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 things things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And potentially a larger audience isn't necessarily going to say, "Oh, oh, that was Diana who she had that falling out with." Yeah, yes. and,
1: and the great thing about poetry is it's v- not black and white you can read a poem, and you can think it's true, but it might not be true. And I'm very hesitant at this point to to pull out, this is true, this is true, this isn't true. I really want, if it ever got published, and even just with my thesis advisor and the other people reading it, I don't like saying that I'm drawing on personal experience for this, this, and this, because I just want them to examine the poetry and what I'm saying within that. And ultimately, w- reality isn't really important. Hmm.
0: Um, And now when you're talking about what you're drawing from a personal experience, is that going into the the poetry that is about these uh, Greek myths, or are they two separate things? Is there something about the myths, and then there's other ones that may or may not be personal?
1: Yeah, so the way the manuscript is right now, it's in three sections, and the first section is saturated with these ancient Greek mythological women's voices. The second section um, is the speaker exploring modern-day Greece and also Um, exploring basically moving from adolescence to adulthood and the anxiety that comes with that. And the final section is dealing with that anxiety even more and dealing with the grief um, and facing reality, so to speak. And that section has the least amount of grief within
0: it. So it's not really separated out. It's all mixed in together.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the sections call back on one another, themes call back on one another.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're looking at um, contemporary Canadian poetry right now as well, is that what you were saying?
1: Yeah, Uvic is really uh, the UVic writing department is really good on giving an emphasis of Canadian contemporary writers because if you're most likely studying at UVic, you are wanting to be a Canadian contemporary writer. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to see what's working in the publishing world what's getting attention and the steps that you can take to um, become like them we're really lucky um, more so from the undergrad program because the MFA program in creative writing is still so new but it's really lovely when you get a creative writing undergrad who's graduated and gone on to to write a book win awards and come back and talk to you Mm. and tell you exactly when I was in this room I was thinking this and I got from point a to point b by doing that and I think that's really important Um, You can definitely bring in, if you really love American poets, you can definitely bring those in. I had a workshop last year with Lorna Crozier where we studied the American poets Stephen Dunn and Robert Haas. So there is room for that, but it's great that they give an emphasis on Canadian writers because you're going to be a Canadian writer.
0: Right. Um, Is there anybody that you, well, before I get to that, you talked about what is getting attention right now and what uh, is actually getting, what is successful in Canadian writing. What are some of those themes that we see? I have to admit, when I think of Canadian poetry, I'm thinking of like ice and snow and, you know, those sort of. ballad-like poems about living in the cold. I'm right. a little out of the loop.
1: <laughs> right? Um, yeah, there's there's a lot more to Canadian poetry than just writing about ice and snow. We have so many great examples of Canadian writers here at UVic. Uh, Lorna Crozier, when she was starting on her career, she was one of those first female Canadian poets who started writing about her time in the prairies and at the time the prairies was a part of Canada that wasn't getting as much as much attention or focus in the writing community and she really brought out her childhood in that space to kind of create a, a larger image of Canada as a whole. Then we get poets um, and my advisor Tim Lilburn who rather than talking about snow and ice are writing very philosophical introspective pieces that are completely different than just discussing pure landscapes or anything like that.
0: Your um, your poetry seems very like woman-focused. Do you have, are there other people that you look at that are doing a similar kind of thing or are you just sort of relying on your own what your own internal process is
1: a lot of people when I discuss my work will say oh you should read so-and-so or I have this book from so-and-so you should read it and I'm very um, careful about distancing myself from anyone who might be similar Mm. mostly because I don't want to read their work and then subconsciously um, write similarly the big name that always comes up with me is Anne Carson she's a Canadian poet and she does a ton of work with classics even more so than the things that I'm doing. She has a whole book where she's translated uh, fragments of Sappho, and she's extremely intellectual and extremely well-versed in the world of classics and as a woman and issues surrounding uh, women. But I, I've only read one of her books because I don't want the way she writes and the things she r- she's saying to influence my writing too much. Mm-hmm. I've tried to f- pick these figures and these moments on my own and not draw on the way another poet has interpreted them. And I feel like that's important for keeping it authentic. And
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to become a carbon copy of someone else, really. Exactly. And I think that happens uh, in creative things. Sometimes, you know, subconsciously, you'll sort of pick up like, on things you like.
1: Even with all of the amazing writers and profs I've worked with here at UVic, I have all their books at home, but I'm waiting till I graduate mm-hmm. to, to read them all in their entirety because I don't want to subconsciously push my work in one direction or or another
0: Mm. so how long is your program going to be how much longer do you have
1: so I'm very lucky I'm defending in February and then TAing until the end of April so I'm in the home stretch
0: wow and then as you said you want to put what your manuscript out there into the world and see if it gets published what do you have other plans afterwards what do you think you're going to do
1: Um, Well, my home base is in Ottawa, so I'm moving back to Ottawa, and the number one goal is to just get a job um, Mm -hmm. in any sort of manner that that means, Um, but I do have lots of ideas for how I want to translate this degree outside of publishing um, into the real world. I would love to start um, a literary magazine. I did a program called MEI International Academy where I actually traveled in Greece earning high school credits as well as other countries and that was one of the places I, I did a lot of creative writing because you um, had to do we were assigned to do creative writing mm-hmm. um, and I'd loved um, to help them start some sort of literary magazine that that integrates travel and, and poetry and writing and photography because all the students are producing um, that work anyway so I think it would be really nice to have that printed I also have really wacky ideas I really like bad poetry, and I think it'd be really great to have more uh, discussion about that. There's someone's...
0: Why do you like that so much?
1: (laughs) It's really easy to look at a published and well-spoken writer and be like, wow, they are so awesome, I don't know if I will ever be like them, but what each of those writers have that we don't see is these piles and piles of first drafts, these really bad lines that they've cut, these processes that they've gone through. And I think exposing that and talking about that more will make this process of going from writer who was unpublished to to wanting to be a published writer a lot less intimidating and being honest about that process and discussing how difficult revisions can be Mm. and also laughing at yourself being like I wrote this line and it was horrible and I don't know what I was thinking especially (laughs) the stuff we write when we're like 18 and very Mm. emotional um, and like overly dramatic and overly sentimental I think it's great to look back at that with um, with humor.
0: That's amazing. And what 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 form would that project take? uh, Some sort of there already
1: are some people who lead these things called like bad poetry readings where anyone's invited to come and read from their journal and you all laugh at it. Um, I would love to do something like that as well. I also think starting a blog would be a great idea where people can submit either bad poetry or first drafts and then submit a final draft and, and talk about how they got to that place and, mm-hmm. and how they maybe laughed at themselves and 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 overcame that to produce something that was very strong.
0: Hmm. Oh, we're, we're getting short on time here. Can I ask you to read something for us?
1: Sure. So I'm going to read a poem called For the Most Beautiful One or How to Start a War. And it's in the first section of my manuscript where I'm dealing with the ancient mythological voices. Um, This poem deals with the goddess Ares, who's the goddess of discord. A little background on the myth before I read the poem. Um, Ares, goddess of discord, um, so caused strife. There was a wedding, and of course Ares wasn't invited because she causes strife and discord, and these people wanted a nice happy wedding, and she felt very um, scorned by that. So she decided to interrupt the party and throw an apple into the party, which is called the apple of discord. And it said on the apple, this is for the most beautiful one. And immediately Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena all squabbled over, obviously this apple was for them because they were the most beautiful one. Um, They're all fighting amongst each other, and they decided to choose Paris, as you may recognize from the Trojan War. Um, to judge who was actually the most beautiful one, and they all bribed him in different ways. Um, He eventually chose Aphrodite, who promised him Helen. And as hopefully most Mm. people know, that's how the Trojan War started. Um, So yeah, this is the poem for the most beautiful one, or how to start a war. Ares takes off her fake fingernails one by one, each one gently sharpened into a claw shape, red and polished, lacquered lacklusterly. She removes her long eyelashes, a luscious set of falsies. Feathered, elongated fun, synthetic silliness. She bathes in baby wipes, erases every ink and paint stain splatter on her skin. Her lips return to neutral and dull. Her eyes look so plain and boring. She swears she can feel her skin sagging and the wrinkles developing. She's pretty sure she'll die soon without ever finding a gray hair. She's pretty sure her heart is going to jump out of her chest and land on the bathroom floor. Just stay in control, just stay in control, just stay in control. She's pretty sure one more pill will make her feel more like herself. Walking to her room, she hears the shrieks of her roommates going over the details of tonight's party. Aries had not had the pleasure of being invited to. She sinks into her skin. The next morning, long after the sun had risen, her half-awake roommate Hera finds a single red apple in the kitchen with a single note, for the most beautiful one.
0: I want to thank you so much for being my guest today and best of luck with the rest of your
1: studies. Thank you so much.
0: Again, thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV.